Today we're reading from Mark chapter 10, so let's go to the word and read it together. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. And honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. 
Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be serve, served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. A lot of what we have read in Mark chapter 10 may seem familiar to you, and that's true. You can see here how Jesus, on his last journey to Jerusalem, before his execution, continues to remind and instruct his disciples on who he truly is. And who is that? Jesus is the Son of God, co-equal with the Father in his divinity. He is a Messiah for the Jews and for the Gentiles. And he is going to be on a path where he is going to be killed by the Gentiles, but rise again. All of this flies in the face of who the Jews thought the Messiah would be. And we've talked about this several times. The Jews continue to struggle with understanding who Jesus truly is and what he has been sent to do. And you can see this here. The disciples continue to struggle with the fact that he's not going to be a king who is going to be a human only, was going to raise up a new army, conquer the Romans, kick them out of Judea, and become their new physical king. All of that is misconceptions on the part of the Jews, and Jesus continues to remind them that that is not true, but it's hard for them to understand it. Now, as we go back to the beginning of Mark chapter 10, we see again here where uh, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are continuing to try and test Jesus to catch him. What they want to do is to be able to say, look, we challenged this guy who came from nowhere and he is claiming to be something that we think he is not so that we can have charges to bring against him in a religious way. And again, the Jews are very powerful in Jerusalem. They have a lot of power over what they can do to people if they have religious uh, problems. And so they're trying to catch him. And another reason they're trying to catch him is to turn the crowds against him. 
if we can show that a uh, trick Jesus into giving us an answer that flies in the face of our scriptures, we can show these crowds who are following Jesus that he's a fraud. And that's what they're trying to do. But once again, Jesus catches them because of their hard hearts. They come to him and test him with divorce. And I know this is a contentious topic. I always like to say, if you have a concern or a controversial subject, go to the word of God and let the word of God lead you into the right answer. Through prayer and reading of the word, you can come to the answer that God is trying to tell you. And it's no different for divorce. So let's read that. Jesus turns the tables back on the Pharisees to ask them, what did Moses command you? And of course they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. You can see here how the the whole focus here is on Moses, not on God. And Jesus, of course, rightly turns it back on them and says, yes, Moses, the man, let you do this, empowered by God, because your your hearts were hard and you wanted to divorce your spouse. Jesus makes the perfect statement here that in the beginning, God created man and woman, two separate beings that would become united in marriage. And that is the point. Uh, years ago, a pastor showed a, a demonstration of what this means. He had two two-by-four pieces of wood um, with a picture of a man on one, a picture of a woman on the other, <clears throat> and he showed us what happens when a union of marriage occurs. In God's eyes, those two became one flesh, and the pastor glued with uh, heavy wood glue these two pieces of wood together and let them bond. After that wood had dried, he said, okay, let's imagine these two people want to get divorced. What happens? In the physical act of him trying to separate those pieces of wood, both pieces were destroyed. You couldn't separate them cleanly because they had become one solid piece of wood. They were fractured. They were torn. There were splinters. There were chunks of wood that came off. And in the end, both were damaged. This is exactly what happens in divorce. It's interesting here, too, because Jesus is making the comment that even if a woman divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the only place in the Gospels that Jesus also refers to women as playing a part in this role and how it can damage her as well. Now, as we move on, we see Jesus again talking about little children. This has happened before. Children being the lowest rung of the ladder in this society were not respected. They were not valued. And as children come to Jesus, his disciples, who are kind of acting like essentially the the bodyguards of Jesus, try and turn them away. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, no, these little children with their pure faith and their awe and their wonder love me unconditionally because they don't have all the baggage that all of you have as grown adults who have grown cynical and, and angry and bitter at the world. They have a pure love for me that I respect and love. And in fact, he says, that is exactly the kind of faith I'm looking for in a disciple. Don't be bitter. Don't be angry or hard in your heart. Come to me with an openness and a love and a wonder of what I can do for you and how being my disciple can change your life. And he lets them come to him. And again, makes the analogy comparison here that those little children are just like you, disciples. They should be like you in the sense of your faith, but they are like you in that they're naive and uh, they, they also 
like the disciples, don't really get who Jesus is yet. And he makes that alternate comparison here with the children and his disciples because he'll later even refer to his disciples as children. He wants to make the case here that a young disciple should come to Jesus with an open mind and an open heart. And that's exactly what he does. Now, the next passage here is about the rich man. And this has caused confusion, and I get questions about this passage from time to time. What is exactly happening here? Well, as we read this passage, we see how this rich young man comes before Jesus. And I think to expand on what's happening here, we obviously have a man who has heard about Jesus. He has heard about the stories of salvation, of becoming part of this Christian community. And I think what this young rich man is getting at is, what is a fast path that I can achieve this salvation without much sacrifice? Obviously, this is a man who has probably not worked very hard in his life. He has probably gotten his wealth um, independently uh, from his own efforts. He's been given it, and he kind of has kind of grown used to the fact that you can get whatever you want in life very easily without much struggle or sacrifice. The second problem that this rich man has is he does not view Jesus as divine. He continues to see Jesus as his Uh, Jesus' disciples do. That is, as a human being and nothing more. A good teacher, a philosopher, but not the Son of God and not co-equal with the Father. So that explains then Jesus' response to this man who comes and says, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus, by saying, why do you call me good? What he's really saying is, why do you only see me as a human being? Because I am much more than that. No one is good except God alone. You should be seeing me, Jesus, as co-equal with the Father. I am divine. Because there is no fast path to salvation here, the other part here is, in his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Again, the third problem this rich man has is his focus on who is in control of his salvation destiny. This rich man, like the disciples and like all of the other uh, Jews and Gentiles who are starting to follow Jesus, are wrongly thinking that their salvation is in their hands, that they have to earn it, that they have to do some kind of uh, good works or righteous acts in order to earn their salvation. And again, this is another misconception, which Jesus hits him back on. He says, it is not in your hands. He says, you know the commandments, and he goes through the commandments. Of course, the man says, Uh, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Again, Jesus making the point that if it was in your hands, you could never do enough. And so Jesus says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. It is not the act itself of giving away his possessions. What Jesus is really telling this man is, if you truly want to be saved, you will be willing to do whatever I ask of you whatever I ask of you. And that in your heart means that you truly want to be saved. And then I, Jesus, through empowerment of my Father, God, will save you. The saving power is in God's hands, not yours. How interesting that Jesus looked at him and, quote, loved him. This is very rare in the New Testament to hear this. Agape, he loved him. He cared for him. Even A man who is probably not going to end up being saved, Jesus still loved. But it saddened him because the man in his heart was not willing to 
do and sacrifice anything to become Jesus' disciple. And that, my friends, is exactly what Jesus expects of us. And if you do that, if you do that as we go on, although you will potentially lose the things in your life that you think you care about more than God, your possessions, your friends, your family, your status, what Jesus is telling us here is you will get back that in abundance. You will have brothers and sisters in Christ. You will have a great wealthy inheritance in heaven. You will have renewal of your soul and your spirit through that transformative regeneration of salvation. Jesus is saying the benefits of being willing to do whatever I ask and expect of you are far greater than any of the petty things that you could keep here on this world, which will perish anyway. And he again makes the connection between his disciples this, this kind of connection of disciples not understanding who he is by calling them children again. They're young in their faith. They're immature in their faith, and they're not understanding all of this. And again, I want to make the point here, too, that Jesus effectively uses hyperbole to make his point. You can see here, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is being dramatic, and he is being excessive, and he is he is really, uh, again, using hyperbole here and analogy to explain a very important concept. He is not physically talking about a camel physically going through the eye of a needle because that's ludicrous. But he's trying to shock his audience through using this hyperbole into understanding the alternative. You can see as we go on that Jesus again predicts his death. And again, just like it has in chapters before this, it has riled up the disciples. Some of them leave, not the 12, but some of the other disciples and followers that have been following Jesus actually stop following him. And the other gospels confirm this, that on the road to Jerusalem, many of Jesus' followers abandon him because of his message. It is not jiving with what they expected this person to be. We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He will be condemned to death. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Folks, this is completely the opposite of what these disciples expect. They think they're going to Jerusalem to start a civil war in which Rome will be kicked out, Jesus will be crowned king, and they will all be on the inner circle and have great power and influence in their culture. And Jesus, again, says, you are dead wrong about that. That is not what is about to happen. And you can see how it's really riling them up. Again, they don't get it because immediately after this, James and John, part of his inner circle, again come to him and say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. He said, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Again, he's saying, I'm going to die on the cross. You want that too? Because they're not thinking that. They're thinking he's going to be in charge and we're going to have a lot of honor and glory in this new society. And they still don't get it. But Jesus rightfully says, you want to be at my right and my left hand, but that's not for me to decide. That's for my father to decide. And again, we see the division amongst the disciples when they see James and John coming to Jesus with this request. The other 10 get really jealous. They get indignant and angry. Fractures, again, happening within the disciples. And they're also amazed that the Gentiles are going to be part of this murder, essentially, of Jesus. Because, 
again, folks, the Gentiles lower than the Jews on their social status. They can't even believe the Gentiles would even be able to do this if Jesus was the Messiah that they thought he was. And they also don't get the fact that Jesus is not going to be a ruler who's going to lord that over them. He is going to be a servant leader. He is going to do the most vile, disgusting, washing of feet, taking care of the sick, cleaning up the filth of those who are poor and hungry. He's going to do all of the grunt work for them, and he wants his disciples to do the same. Again, if you are the inner court of a king, you would never do that. And Jesus is saying, that's not who I am. If you want to be in a position of authority, then you have to be willing to do the most menial of servant tasks. And he's going to prove that to them in a few days when he starts to wash their feet at the Last Supper. Finally, we come to Bartimaeus, the blind man outside of Jericho. Yes, there are several stories. There was probably several miracle events that happened with healing of blind men, both going to Jericho and coming from it. They are separate events. We're focusing on this event here. Bartimaeus was a man who desperately wanted Jesus to heal him because he truly believed Jesus could heal him. Again, a reminder, Jesus only performed miraculous uh, healing events for those who had some kernel of faith already or for people who believed that they could, uh, he could heal their loved ones or their friends. So there had to be that element of faith there. The second thing is he, he asked Bartimaeus directly when he finally comes to him, he goes, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. I want to end our discussion today on this very, very important fact. God wants you to be specific in your requests to him. I think as Christians, we often kind of backpedal in our faith, and we kind of grow accustomed to the fact that, yes, God is sovereign, or we get accustomed to the fact that maybe God doesn't do everything we want, or even for some of you, he doesn't have the power to do it. Maybe you don't believe in miracles. Maybe you don't believe in God's power over the natural universe. So we, I would say most Christians backpedal quite a bit when it comes to believing in God answering their specific prayers. I want you to look at the Word of God and what it specifically says. In the New Testament, anytime Jesus was asked to do something, the people who asked him asked specifically for a very specific thing. They didn't ask generally. And when they did ask generally, Jesus made them clarify and say specifically, what are you asking for? This is completely the opposite of the way I think most Christians today pray for God to do things in their life. We kind of tend to go in this prayer and say, dear God, I would really like you to help me to get a better job. But if you don't, it's your will, and I'll understand it, and I'll accept that. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying here. I think what he's saying is, in your heart, first of all, you should only ask for uh, prayer to be answered that is righteous and that glorifies him. So you're certainly not going to be answered in a prayer, I think, where you ask for sin to happen. I want to cheat on my wife, or I want to be able to steal money from my employer. He's certainly not going to answer those because they're just not righteous. But I don't think that's what most people are thinking. I think the thing that people struggle with is they're afraid that their prayers are not going to be answered. And this is why I think that. I think it's because when God answers your prayers, you're not remembering it. And you're not being specific enough to know that he has answered them.
the only way your faith is going to grow is if you specifically ask for certain things to happen and then you note them when they do. The Bible is very clear about this, folks. If you are righteous and holy and good in your request and you have a relationship with Jesus and you believe that he can give it to you, the Bible is pretty clear here, folks, that Jesus can do anything you ask for. And the word here is not some things and the word is not a few. It is God can do anything or everything you request. Hebrews says it. The Gospels say it. Corinthians say it. Jesus wants you to be very specific in your prayer. Don't pray, oh Lord, I hope that I have a good day, but if I don't, then that's okay too. Don't pray that. Do you want to have a better job? Say, dear Lord, I really want a better job because of X, Y, and Z. Dear God, I want you to heal my mom of cancer. I want you to save her life. Folks, be specific. Be specific and don't give up in your prayers. Because this is what Jesus is saying in this passage. I want you, blind man, to say exactly what you want. I want to see again and I want to have my sight. Don't give up on that. Yes, in your mind, know that God can and does do what his will is. In fact, we know in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus even prayed specifically for a very specific prayer. I want you to take this cup from me. Now, in that case, I would argue, again, that it was a righteous prayer, that Jesus prayed specifically that he didn't have to undergo the torture and murder that he was about to undergo. But I believe this, folks. That if the Bible says you can pray specifically for something and receive it, you will. And if you don't receive what you actually ask for, God will give you something even better. Pray specifically for specific things that you want. And when God intervenes, which I know he will, keep a prayer journal. Write that down. Write, this is what I asked for today, and this is what ended up happening. It may take a while. Because God puts certain things in action that sometimes don't happen overnight. But he wants you to be faithful in your prayer. That's one sign that you truly do believe that he can do it. If you faithfully pray day after day, God, heal my mother of cancer. God, please give me a better job. That shows to God and to you that you have the faith to be able to pray for these things. You're praying specifically. You're not being wishy-washy. If you say, dear Lord, please give me a better job, but, but if you don't, then that's okay too. Well, that's not faith. That's reality. That's, that's reality because you've now covered 100% of the possibilities. That's not faith. That is not the faith that God is talking about. Be bold in your prayers. Be daring in your prayers and pray specifically for what you want. I subscribe to the belief that if God doesn't give you exactly what you pray for and it's a righteous prayer, he will give you something even better. He might, and in you know extreme cases, maybe you pray for a better job, maybe your spouse gets a better job, and then you can stay home and take care of your children. Maybe if you're praying for your mother to be cured of cancer, in some cases, he will not cure your mother of cancer, but he will take your mother home to glory so that she has a regenerated body in heaven. I mean, folks, you have to be specific and fervent in your prayers, but when God does answer you, write that down so you know what did you get that could have been better than what you asked for, because God will not give you a snake or a stone. He will give you bread and an egg. Thank you for joining us. Join us next time as we talk about Mark chapter 11. Mm -hmm.